are going to be in Isaiah 58. George is not here this morning. He is preaching at Langley. I don't know if you guys knew that, but he's, uh, he's in the Air Force Reserve, so occasionally he gets called to his duty. So he'll be preaching over there this morning. And I'm picking us up at Isaiah chapter 58. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. If you don't have a Bible, we have one, should have one in front of you in the row there, and you can pull and use and even take home if you don't have a Bible. Isaiah 58. This is the last really last major part of Isaiah. There's only 66 chapters, and we're getting closer and closer to the end. And this sort of launches us into a new section of Isaiah where God is taking us to the new heavens and the new earth. Right? He is he's giving us this picture, sort of like Revelation. In the book of Revelation, it points us at the end to the new heavens and to the new earth. It's new creation. And the church is going to be a part of that, right? The church is the central part of the new heavens. In the new earth. So, so we're getting into this portion of Isaiah where it's a picture of what the church ought to be like, what the church is for, and why we were created. Now, last chapter in 57, the, um, the rebuke was for the leadership of Israel and for the wayward paganism that had found its way into God's people. That they were worshiping idols, they were uh, tethering themselves to other nations. Not only, um, not only through military means, but through worship means. They were, t- they were tethering themselves and joining their worship of Yahweh with worship of other gods. But in 58, he's now turning his eyes toward the religious. He's turning his eyes toward those who, who went to the temple, who worshiped, who fasted, who kept the Sabbath. Um, and he's going to point out their hypocrisy. So as we read it, we're going to be pointing out and thinking about our own hypocrisy. Right? That's, what, that's what God's word does. It, it points the arrow, the, the finger comes right back to us. So would you please stand as we read Isaiah 58. We'll read the entire chapter. <clears throat> this is God's holy word. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day, will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, And speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, 
Then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, open our eyes to the truth in your word. May it convict us. May it uh, challenge us. May it draw us closer to you as we think about your holiness and your greatness, your perfect love for your people. So bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at verse, we're going to jump right into verse 1. Look at verse 1. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob, their sins. If you compare that verse with the beginning of the end of 56, he's comparing what Isaiah is to do as this preacher, as this prophet, compared with the irresponsible leadership of Israel. They are watchmen that are blind. They're not calling out people's sin, but Isaiah is called to call out sin in God's people. And so it leads me to think, why talk about sin? Ask that question. Why, why, why would we want to talk about sin? It's unpopular. People don't like to hear about their sin. Uh, many churches have abandoned talking about sin in the first place. It doesn't draw people to the church necessarily, right? It really, it turns people away, doesn't it? Talking about sin. So why? Why is God referring to our sin? Why does he want Isaiah to call out the sin of God's people in verse 1? Is it just to make us feel bad? about ourselves. Imagine this scene. Imagine you're going to the doctor and you've had really bad uh, stomach pain for, for days, weeks. Uh, so you've, you've, you want to go to the doctor, tell him you've had this pain, uh, and he encourages you to get an MRI, see what's causing the pain so they can figure out what it is. The doctor gets the results and he finds out that you have stage four cancer in your stomach. And he sits you down after a couple of weeks of getting the appointment, he sits you down. But instead of telling you the diagnosis of what he learned from the MRI, he tells you that everything will probably be fine. Let's not talk about the results of the MRI. He says, just take care to eat a healthy diet, take all your vitamins, don't smoke or drink, and get plenty of rest and exercise. How would you respond if he said that? Wouldn't you demand to know the results of that test? Wouldn't you? I would. It's the same with our sin. We are in a life and death situation regarding our sin. And we need God to tell us our sin. And it's loving that he tells us our sin because the only way to find the cure for the sin is to know what kind of condition that you're in. You need to know your diagnosis. And so it's actually loving for God in, in chapter 58, verse 1, 
to tell Isaiah, tell my people their sin. We've got to hear it. We need to, we need to hear the diagnosis. But it's more than just knowing the condition so you can know the cure. It's more than that. It's an opportunity for God to tell us, those, are in, those who trust in him and who are in Christ, for him to say, I know everything about you. I know everything. I know everything that you think you're hiding, those things you've never told anybody. I know it all. But I still love you. I know every detail that you're trying to cover up. I know it all, but welcome home. Right? That's the gospel message that he's trying to tell us, that he knows it. He knows every single thing. But I still love you. Isn't that amazing? The early church father, 4th century father, St. Augustine, made a discovery, a theological discovery, that we have um, disordered loves. That it's not that we love things too little, it's that we love things in the wrong order, or in the wrong ways. Like we want God, we desire God, but we want Him on our own terms. We, we raise our, ourselves above God. We want to see good in the world. We want to see a just world, a more equitable world, people treated fairly. But we want to be comfortable first and foremost. That, that love goes above seeing and caring for other people. We want to rest in our salvation and to find true peace in our souls. We want to rest, but only after we've earned it, only after we've worked for it. Right? That's, a, that's a deeper love that we have, that we've earned it. And so what he's trying to pinpoint in Isaiah 58 is true religion. What is true religion versus false religion? What does God really want out of our relationship with him? And he says it like this. True religion really is, is that God blesses us, and it's marked by three loves. True religion that God blesses is marked by three loves. The love of God, the love of neighbor, and a love for the rest only God can give. And so those are the three points, that true religion truly loves God. True religion, secondly, truly loves and cares for others. And true religion truly rests in God's promises. Those are the three places we're going this morning. But first and foremost, true religion truly loves God. True religion truly loves God. Let's look at verses 2 through 5. Look at this description of Israel. This doesn't sound so bad in verse 2, right? They, yet they seek me daily they, and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. See, they were doing all the right things. They were... They, they were doing the right religious things. They seek God. Think about if you were looking for a new church, right? And, and the, new, the description of this church was that they seek God daily. They, they draw near to God. They, they seek his judgments, his righteousness. It, that sounds like a pretty good church that you want to join, right? But the key word here is as if, verse 2, as if they did it as if they were a nation that did righteousness. You see, this word of rebuke is not for the irreligious, the pagans, but it's for the religious. 57 was about the pagans, those who've adopted idolatry. 
But this is a different kind of idolatry. It's a false worship of God by using religion as a ruse. So God is now targeting the temple goers, the religious people. And see how this starts to fall apart. Look at verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? See, they were expecting God to bless them because of their good works, because of what they were doing, because of their fasting, really. Their religious observance was the most important thing to them. And what do they accuse God of in verse 3? Why have we fasted and you see it not? You take no knowledge of it. They are accusing God of not seeing or knowing what is going on. God, do you not see how we're suffering? And we've, we've been obeying you. We've been going to the temple. We've been making our sacrifices. We've been fasting. Why are we suffering? Why are we headed toward exile? Maybe you're thinking something similar. How many of us, by attending worship, serving in the church, reading God's word, pouring ourselves out for others, are actually doing it to put God in our debt, are actually doing it to make a transaction with God. If I do this, you will bless me in these ways. God, you owe me. I worked in the nursery for 10 years. You really owe me. (laughs) You see, God never promises life will be easy, even for believers. Sometimes life gets harder in, in a material sense in a relational sense. He never promises an easy life. But he does promise to make us more godly as we trust in him. You see, false religion looks admirable, but inside, you're holding yourself back. You're saying, I'm not going to give my heart fully to you, God. I'm just going to give you my good behavior, my attendance at church, at small group. God is a means to an end for you, for them, it was. It's all about you looking good in the eyes of others and making a transaction with God. Now, here's the case study that God brings up. It's it's in verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? And going down to verse 4. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight, to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. So fasting is the case study that, that God brings up. Okay, you are fasting. Okay, why are they fasting? Well, it's interesting to note that fasting was only required in the law. I mean, they, they fasted at other times and places um, in Israel's history, but really was just required on the Day of Atonement. They were, uh, God actually told them to fast. And this was really meant for a day recognizing their own sin, right? Knowing that they were sinners, that they, that they needed to repent. And it was a day of repentance and fasting. But now... It seems that they have created many, many days of fasting that were were not required by God, that they were just adding more and more rules, more and more days uh, to make themselves look holy. It's actually what we read in the very first part, the very first chapter of Isaiah. So if you keep your thumb in Isaiah 58 and go all the way back to chapter 1 of Isaiah, all the way back to chapter 1, see what he says. Beginning in verse 13. Isaiah 1, 13. God says, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. 
Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. That's a very interesting mirror as to what we're going to be talking about here in chapter 58. God was really nauseated and tired of their religiosity. He was tired of their new moons, their, their, their fasts, and their feasts. They were just adding things that he did not ask them to. And not only that, in the midst of their fasting, they are fighting. Look at verse 4. You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. They're just fighting. They're quarreling and fighting. And I know one reason why you would fight if you're fasting. You're hangry, right? You're angry and you're hungry, right? We see that all the time with our kids. And I mean, you probably guys have felt that when George is going 40, 45 minutes into his sermon, right? And when I do too, you're getting hangry. So when you're fasting, you're, you're going to be, you're going to get a little upset probably. But think about it in other ways. Have you ever verbally fought with your wife or husband or your kids? on Sunday, um, before coming to church, getting dressed. Why don't you have your clothes on? Wear your socks. Put your shoes on. We've never done that in our house. Um, no, I think you, you realize young families with kids, like getting to church is one of the hardest things to do. And uh, when I see my wife's face sometimes when she's just sitting with no kids back there, she, it's the most happy and content I've seen her right all, all day. Um, You know you're fasting correctly or adhering to worship correctly, not when you're fighting with others and and angry at others, but when it leads you to be more caring of those that are around you and more holy and righteous in your own character. It means that something is is really starting to take root. That's how you're worshiping correctly. So how do we avoid making worship merely a performance? Because that's the other issue. Look at verse 5. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? What God is saying is, is this just mere formalism for you? Are you is your head just like a reed bowing down and spreading out sackcloth and ashes? Is that all religion is for you? Just the formal um, steps that you take. How do we avoid making worship merely performance and and with no effect on our soul? Well, it's remembering this, that true fasting is about humbling yourself. It's about seeing your sin. Going back to verse 1, it's about knowing your sin and your failures and knowing them and repenting and confessing them. And along with that, seeing your great need for God. Who can save me but God alone? I can't save myself. That's what true uh, humility starts to look like. And you see how far God went to save you by sending his only son to the cross to die for your sins. And all of this starts to lead you to love others. And that's the turn that he's taking in verse 6 and 7, six and seven is that, that it's leading you outward to see other people. 
Commentator E.J. Young says, unless there is a true love of God in the heart, there can in reality be no true service to those who are oppressed. The setting free of those whom we have wrongly oppressed only occurs when our own hearts our own hearts are filled with God's love. When being religious becomes all about us, we become indifferent toward the suffering of others. When being religious becomes all about us, we become indifferent to the suffering of others. Ray Ortland says that God doesn't want us to prove our devotion to him by making ourselves hungry and miserable while disregarding our obligation to make others full and happy. If our Christianity, however sincere, doesn't move us to make our world a better place, it's not only unhelpful to others, it's unacceptable to the Lord. And so God, from here on out in chapter 58, God is going to lay out a case against Israel. He's going to bring up two examples of how their religion is false. And the first one is that they failed to love others. And the second one is that they failed to keep his Sabbath. And we're going to see how those are, are related later. So the second idea here is that true religion truly cares about others. Look at verses 6 and 7 here. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? So how do we, how do we get there? Uh, how do we get to caring about others? Well, we, we have to begin with the gospel. Only the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, can open us up to truly desire to serve others. You see, the gospel shows us how far God's willing to save us, how far he's willing to go. And so in turn, it should cause us to ask, how far am I willing to go for my neighbor? It's not possible to be truly religious and socially indifferent to your neighbor. Here are these words from 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... He's a liar, for he does not love his brother. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, and whom he has not seen. You see what John is doing? He's linking this idea of love for neighbor and love for God. If you say you love God, but hate your neighbor, you're a liar. You don't really love God. And the reason those are linked is because people bear God's image. If we say we love God, we will love his image. In other people. We won't be indifferent to suffering. We won't be indifferent to their struggles. But I want to clear something up. And George has talked about this in the past, is, is that if we go off mission, if we, if we lose the gospel, we no longer, become a, no longer are a church, but we become a social organization if we're just doing social justice. So it's important to remember, social justice is not the gospel but it flows from the gospel. If social justice becomes our gospel, we become a community service organization, which are great, and we need more, but we cease to be a church, right? We cease to be a church if the gospel is lost. 
I'm going to read a, a couple things from Thaddeus Williams. This is uh, what, the book that Rob is going to teach through, and I promise, Rob, not to steal your thunder too badly. Uh, it's a really great book, and I'm looking forward to the class. But Thaddeus Williams says this about the gospel. And he says, By the end of Acts chapter 2, we find the newly expanded community of believers selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This action on behalf of the poor wasn't the gospel. It wasn't in the gospel, but it was from the gospel. A second thing flowed from the first thing, which was the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Right? Good works, and we say this all the time, good works flow from the gospel, but they're not the gospel. Social justice, great thing. Doing good for others, great thing. Flows from the gospel is not the gospel message itself. But as we think about this, as you think about how, how do I become more caring and loving toward other people, it's, it's good to remember your condition and my condition, which is we're naturally bent to only think about ourselves. We just are. We love our comfort. We love to be comfortable. We don't like to be bothered. We don't like to sacrifice. Going way back to Genesis 4, Cain, we know, brother of Abel, Cain was tempted by Satan, and he killed Abel because he was jealous that his sacrifice was accepted. Killed Abel, his brother. God asked him, where is your brother? Remember his response? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? In a sense, we all are tempted to to say that about suffering in the world, about other people dealing with problems that we don't have. Am I my brother's keeper? But we're not going to be good even Presbyterians if we say that because we have something called the Westminster Larger Catechism. And the Larger Catechism breaks down the Ten Commandments. And in in question 135, it deals with the Sixth Commandment, do not murder. And in that commandment, it not only says what not to do, but what are the positive implications? One great thing about our catechism is it says, what are the positive implications of the Ten Commandments? And so what are the positive implications? What are we to do based on the Sixth Commandment, not to murder? Well, it says this. The duties required in the Sixth Commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any. See how thorough that is? That we can't just look at the Sixth Commandment and say, I've never murdered anybody. But are we taking that careful study are we, studying, um, are we studying issues that come up in our culture? Are we resisting all thoughts? The, the, the catechism gets into our thought life. Are we subduing all passions, avoiding occasions, temptations, and practices that would possibly take away the life of anybody unjustly? In this book, Thaddeus William defines justice as giving someone their due, giving someone what they deserve. And you can think about that you know, negatively or positively, right? So someone who has uh, committed a murder and on death row, and their due would be punishment. Their due would be death. 
Um, but also, there's another a flip side, a positive way to look at that, and that is giving someone their due as an image bearer. Right? So someone who's oppressed, someone who's in slavery, someone who's been abused, but protecting them and loving them would be their due as an image bearer. Right? So there's two ways to look at justice in that way. You know, I know this is a, this is a tough topic, and I'm glad we're going to be examining it in, a, in the Sunday school coming up, because seeking justice or, or seeking justice in this world right now is tough. I get that. And why is it so tough? Well, it's tough for at least two reasons. Everything in this world, when we hear about bad news, when we hear about people suffering, everything, everything is immediately turned into political posturing. Everything. Right? When we hear an event happening in the news, it's immediately given an opinion, framed in a narrative that we are, are told to believe either to believe, to trust the news we've heard, or to not trust the news, to lend a helping hand or not lend. Everything is political, and we've got to push back against that as as believers. We are scared often to be labeled conservative, liberal. And so, sadly, what happens is we end up doing nothing at all instead of just merely caring for people when we see things happen. So we've got to push back against the, the, the desire to make everything political immediately. Does politics have its place? Absolutely. But caring for people need not be political. Secondly, we hear about more social issues in a day than most people do 50 years ago had heard about in a year. Right? It is constant. Right? If you are uh, on social media, if you watch cable news, it's constant. And so it makes us weary, right? It makes us sad. It makes us despair. It makes us feel guilty because we're not really, we can't do it. We can't do everything about everything we hear. We can't do, we can't do um, anything about it sometimes. We feel at a loss. It makes us weary. So how do we, uh, how do we move forward as believers when we hear about all these things? Well, one, one way to approach that media question is just, just, Limit your media intake, right? Bad things have been happening around the world for decades, for centuries, and not every Christian knew exactly what was happening. Uh, but limit, you could limit your intake. You can pray more, give it to God. But think about it in different ways. Um, how should we think about social justice issues in our world? Well, well first and foremost, it, be, it begins in your home, right? That, that is something that you can, you have immediate relation with is, is somebody in your home who you live with. Um, look, at, look at verse 7. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And go down to the end of verse 7. When you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. So that's certainly that, that idea of your own flesh can certainly mean, and I think it does, all of humanity, all humans. But I think we can think about it in terms of our kin, right? Our family. Let's take care of each other. A father taking care of their children, a mother taking care of a husband and, and children. We need to, that's where justice starts, right? Our own flesh. And then think about it in terms of the church. How do we help our brother and sister in Christ, who we sit across this aisle with, that we talk to, that we see who's suffering, who needs a meal, who needs to be cared for? Galatians 6.10 says that we should do good to everybody, especially the household of faith. 
So it begins here as well. We think about our family, we think about our church and how we ought to love our church, but then it spreads into our neighborhoods, into our marketplaces, into our schools. It asks, where are people suffering? Where is their need? Where can I give help? Where can I give people their due? And, um, and we do that as a church even. We, we support the COP Christian Outreach. It helps people pay their bills. It helps people, um, mothers with diapers and all sorts of food needs and furniture needs we've been given to them. We do it with the CPC, the Crisis Pregnancy Center. We help um, organizations that align with our mission. But it's not just what the church does as an institution. It's what you guys go out and do every day, individually. You can go out and do this work. So it spreads into our neighborhoods, but it also, we can think nationally too. We can think laws. We can think institutions as well. Um, how do we, we have a great responsibility as Americans to vote for those uh, issues and people who we think will make a more just society. So we've been blessed in that sense. And I wanted to read a story of a, of a, of a, a pastor, professor, his name's Eddie. This is from the book of uh, Thaddeus Williams' book. This is his story of working in um, South Korea. He says, I loved every part of pastoring in South Korea, the shepherding, the teaching, the discipleship, the evangelism. But in the fall of 2010, while I was walking through the busy streets of Seoul, God opened up my eyes to a group of people I had completely missed. In the alleyways of Gangnam, one of Seoul's bustling consumer areas with a booming nightlife, I found thousands of young women and girls who had been forced into sexual slavery. What was even more disturbing was that no one was doing anything to end this evil or care for these victims. As a pastor, I knew our church had to get involved. So we began a justice ministry and opened the first Christ-centered aftercare center for survivors of sex trafficking in Korea. God furthered opened my eyes as I read in the Gospel of Matthew how the hungry, thirsty, the poor, the prisoner matter profoundly to Jesus. Throughout Scripture, I saw God's heart beating for the orphan, the widow, the fatherless, the foreigner. And what do these people have in common? They are the most vulnerable groups in our society. Scripture is crystal clear. The deeply vulnerable are deeply valuable to God. Taking our cues from God's character and commands, our church moved into these areas of vulnerability, looking for ways to serve. We helped rescue a 15-year-old named Jenny, who had been violated by a close relative at the age of six. The abuse continued until she was 10, and that's when she decided that the streets might be safer than her home. Within hours of her running away, an online trafficker lured Jenny into his home, and from that day, she was abused 10 to 15 times a night for the next five, five years. By God's grace, she was able to run away and find our aftercare center. Jenny had felt worthless her whole life. But through the life, love, and words of her new caregivers, she experienced unconditional love for the first time. Why do you care about us? That was the most common question we would get from those whom society had treated as mere objects. It was also the easiest question to answer. We love you because God loves you. We love you because we love God, and God loves you infinitely more than we ever could. We could credibly verbalize the gospel with them because they could see how the gospel had reshaped our lives. And he also mentions, mentions a little later that they were empowered to change 15 laws in Korea concerning human trafficking and adoption. 
So it just goes to show that the church can make a huge difference when we see need. All we have to do is, is have our eyes open for it when we see it. And ultimately, what makes this biggest difference is, is truly worshiping God. If we are aligned with worshiping God, we will see need when we will see those who um, are struggling and who, injustices that are happening. Giving others their due begins with giving God his due and worshiping him as ultimate. Um, Williams goes on in, in talking about this idea that, that everything we do towards other people is related vertically to God. He says, get, refusing to give the creator the honor and gratitude he is due, we turn and bow to the cosmos. We endow created things with an ultimate value that they are not due, and this is a double injustice. We fail to give both the creator and the creation what they're properly due. And in Paul's language, we exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so this is where we move into this idea of the Sabbath in chapter 58. The second evidence that God is saying that they had gone into false worship, false religion, is that they no longer took a delight in the Sabbath into God's, God's holy day. So we're going to finish by looking at verses 13 and 14. He says, If you turn your back <clears throat> your foot, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you to ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So again, what's the connection here between social justice and Sabbath keeping? Why the the move here? What's the connection? Remember, if we're resting and trusting in God, we will be more attuned to suffering in the world. Remember what Jesus said when he healed on the Sabbath to the Pharisees. He said, is it lawful to do harm or to do good? On the Sabbath. And so he was telling them, well, we, we need to do good on the Sabbath. There's a link between worship of God and doing good to others. And so what, why, why the Sabbath? Why does God give us the Sabbath? One of the reasons is to remember all the promises that he's given us. And so what are the promises that we can look forward to when we give ourselves wholly to him? Well, there's a whole list of promises that I haven't even really begun to meditate on with you this morning. But the first begin in verse 8, when he says, when you start living this way, attuned with God, loving him, loving neighbor, your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. Um, basically what he's saying is, God's promises will become real, real to you in a way they've never been real to you before you will understand what true religion is, that you will understand true righteousness, not only because you experience it from God, but but you're getting to live it out toward other people. And compare fasting with, with the Sabbath. I think there's an interesting correlation and contrast here. Instead of creating various fasts, he's telling us um, that we need to recommit to one of the great Ten Commandments, which is keeping the Sabbath. That don't, don't create all these fast days 
that I, I'm not telling you to obey, but recommit yourself to taking delight in my day, the Sabbath day. And what's interesting to note is fast is obviously a fast day. You're not eating. But the Sabbath is a feast day. So he's telling you, turn from the fast day and turn to the feast day where you are, where you are being fed by God. Not just physically, but by his word. It's a celebration. It's not the, 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 the Lord's day is not about rule keeping. It's about celebrating God's good work that he's done for you, that you can rest in. Uh, one commentator says, it's the real, it is a real test of heart religion to give a whole day to God and to do it with delight. The Sabbath is first a call to consecrate life's timetable to God, to adopt a style for six days, which allows the seventh day to be a day apart. I love that he says that. We are to consecrate life's timetable to God. Preparing for the Lord's day begins on Monday. <clears throat> As we think about, okay, what am I doing this week? How is it leading me into Sunday and worship? It's a day set apart. He also says the heart is so captivated by God that the day set apart is a joy. This is the reason for the Sabbath emphasis and the rest of the chapters of Isaiah. It's the symbol of a whole life and heart devoted to the Lord. He says the Sabbath calls for careful, thoughtful living. We're to prepare to protect this gift. The Lord's Day is a gift, and we're to protect it, and we're to think about how are we to observe it? How are we to take more and more delight in it? Not going our own ways, not not continuing our regular business. And so I have a challenge for us. I challenge you to make a commitment to guard the Sabbath day this year and see what happens to your spiritual life. Right? Guard the day, keep it, and see what happens to your spiritual life. Now, what are you to do on that day? Well, <clears throat> don't see it as a second Saturday. Don't see it as a second Saturday. See it as the first day of the week that God is giving us as a gift to remind us of his promises, that he loves us, and that he has done everything for us in salvation. There's nothing to earn. It's not a day to finish up work. And doing all of that stuff, and I'm not not here to make you feel bad. What I'm trying to say is I'm trying to give you a gift. God's trying to give you a gift. And if you protect it and you see it as a gift, you will enjoy it. And you will... You will experience new life spiritually when you are um, focused on him, focused on his people, focused on worship. Um, and so what does it look like? I, what does it look like in our family? Uh, and we don't do it perfectly. Uh, we, we've been learning, I think, the past five years of being, even being here at Hope. What does the Lord's Day look like for us? And for us, obviously, it, it means worship. It means, you know, it's weird, it's strange when we've had to miss any Sundays not being here. The culmination of our week is to be here with you, hearing the word preached in fellowship. And then it spills out from there where we rest. Sometimes we take naps. We let our kids watch uh, Bible uh, shows. Um, We try to get together with other believers uh, and you guys, um, hanging out, going on walks, seeing God's creation. Um. Remember, it's a day to rest, to cease, to stop. And it's a blessing when you do that. It's a day to take your eyes off the world. What are those things you're doing Monday through Saturday that are like work to you? 
leave those things behind, no matter what it is. Leave those things behind and focus on resting. Focus on worship. Uh, It's a day to take your eyes off the world. It's a day to understand what he's accomplished for us. And it will open our hearts to even love those around us. And lastly, he promises us to feed us. Look at the bottom of verse 14 as we wrap up. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The more you set aside the Lord's day, worship him, prioritize that day, you will feel fuller and fuller spiritually because your focus is off yourself. Your focus is off your work. Your focus is off the things that you maybe find value in throughout the week that give you value. Where God is saying your true identity is in Christ and what he's done for you to accomplish salvation for you. And all these promises we read about are here for us to enjoy. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you give us rest, that you give us a gift, a day in which we can cease from working, a day in which we can then look beyond ourselves at those around us who have need, who need a friend and who need material things, who are suffering. But most importantly, Father, a day where we can all turn our eyes upon you to worship you, to be, to be fed by your grace and your mercy. So would you do that for us uh, today and for every Lord's day that you give us on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.